Just before he died, Sir Walter Scott said, Bring me the book. What book? asked John Lockhart, who was standing by his bed. And the old Scotsman said, There is only one book, the Bible. But I imagine that there are a lot of people in his time, as well as in our own time, who are not quite so confident about it as that. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, once was criticized because he failed to defend the Bible against some issue, some controversy that was current. Defend the Bible, flamed the great preacher. I just as soon try to defend a lion, unchain it, and it will defend itself. But I'm a little bit afraid that there are some of us who are not that sure about it. Thomas Jefferson once stated the position of the Bible, at least formally, in the history of our country when he said that the Bible is the rock on which this republic rests. But I wonder if there's a politician today who would stand and dare say that and mean it. There have literally been hundreds of Bible translators who have given their lives because they wanted their people to know the Word of God. Wycliffe saw in the Bible some things that would destroy some of the evils of the medieval society in which he lived. And he wanted to translate the Bible into the language of his people. And because he did, they burned his books. And because he died before they could burn him, they dug up his bones and they burned his bones. And they scattered the ashes over a great river because they didn't want anybody to be able to build a monument at the place where he was buried. So was the humiliation suffered by a man who wanted, who first translated the Bible, the whole Bible, into English. For centuries, evangelicals have stated they believe that the Bible is a divine and sacred book. But no one with more sincerity and conviction, perhaps, than Baptist. We have said we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, written by men, that it has God as its offer, salvation as its end, and truth without mixture of error as its matter. E.Y. Mullins, perhaps the greatest theologian that Baptist has ever produced, said that the Bible is the source of the historical revelation of God in Christ Jesus. It is authoritative for one's Christian experience and doctrine. It is our pattern for Christian faith and practice. It is God-breathed, and it is God's Word for a lost world. But I wonder how many of us this morning really and truly believe that. There are sure a lot of questions today being asked about the Bible. And the biggest question is the subtle one, and it's not, is the Bible inerrant? You know, if you know anything about what Baptists have been doing in the last year, you know that we've been fighting and fussing and arguing over the inerrancy of the Scriptures. And when I was going out to, to one of those meetings in California, I was going out to the convention center, walking in there, uh, where I knew that we were going to get in another debate about the inerrancy of the Bible. 
and the millions of people passing by in that, in that cesspool in, West, in the western part of the United States, I was thinking to myself, you know what we're doing? We're inside here debating answers to questions that the modern man is not asking. Isn't that an exercise in futility? The big question that the modern man asks about the Bible is one that you have secretly asked and are asking. Is, does it have any meaning for me today? This book with its God talk is dead, says the modern man. It's irrelevant. It has no word for me in my time. And its greatest irrelevancy is in its central word, which is God. To the modern man, the Bible is a pre-scientific book that we have all outgrown. And I think perhaps that if you were honest, now, now really, now be honest with me, haven't there been times when you've asked the same question, does the Bible any longer have meaning to me, for me? Oh, I know that it's number one bestseller, and I know that no president would ever get elected who would ever stand up and say, I don't believe the Bible is just a bunch of myths. Well, let's take our heads out of the sand. Most of us, down deep inside, have some question about its relevancy. Have some question about, does it have anything to say to me? And one reason why is because we don't understand its language. I've had 101 different people say to me, I don't understand this book. I started out in Genesis and I was going to read the whole Bible. I didn't get too far until I got bogged down. It doesn't mean a thing to me. I don't understand it. And we do have a problem here because the Bible was written in a century that's not 20th and it was written in a language that's not English. How do you understand the Bible living in an in a industrialized, mechanicalized society and you're reading something spiritual when it's written in a language that's not English to a culture that's not 20th century? And how do you understand all those strange thought forms and patterns that are there? We do have a problem here. And that problem was accentuated in a little book called God is for Real, Man. It was written by a man who worked with problem-troubled boys. They came from broken homes in the Bronx. They came from the worst kinds of environ environs. And he said as he worked with them, he, he decided it was time to teach them the Word of God. And so he started talking to them in the language of the Bible. And he said, God is like a father. Somebody on the back row said, If he's anything like I, my old man, I hate his guts. To those boys, a father was an enemy, a despised authority figure, a drunk. And so he turned the chapter over to that chapter, turned the pages to the chapter that talked about loving your neighbor. And another guy got up and he said, I'll tell you who my neighbor is. He's that turkey lives next door that stabbed my brother last week. That's the problem we have trying to make the Bible speak to us in a language that you and I can understand. And you've felt that problem, you've experienced it, haven't you? Well, I know you'd be horrified this morning if I told you I believe that the codes of the Bible are not the real codes of conduct and law and morality. You'd be horrified this morning if I told you the Bible is just a myth. But I want to ask you, how much have, of it have you read? 
and how much of it molds and shapes your lifestyle and how much has it made a difference in your life. The Bible to some of us is pretty irrelevant because we don't understand its language. Have we outgrown the Bible? I think you've already anticipated my answer to that question. You know what I've got to say if I don't say it. <laughs> no, we have not outgrown the Bible and we never will. And the relevancy of the Bible is not found in the fact that it is of superior literature either. And it is, however. Much of the literature of the world contains the quotations of the Bible. Shakespeare quoted out of 54 of the 66 books of the Bible. The great literature of the world has as much of its theme the emphasis of the Bible. There's never been an oratory anyone has ever declared like the book of Deuteronomy. And Shakespeare never wrote a tragedy that can compare with Job. And Browning never wrote a poem that can equal the 23rd Psalm. And the lonesome pessimism of Ecclesiastes will make Nietzsche and the fatalistic philosophers look like optimists. There is no literature like the Scripture. And yet that's not what makes it meaningful and relevant. Nor is its relevancy found in our debating about it. We argue and debate about the side issues of the Bible. We argue about whether Jonah was a real person or that's a parable, whether John was written in the first century or the tenth. We get in all these kinds of debates, side issues and irrelevant matters. The question this morning is, does the Bible have any meaning to you and me? Or maybe a bigger question than that. Now hang right with me. All of this is introductory to the main, to the, to the meat. Maybe the bigger question is this, have we made the Bible irrelevant? We have not outgrown the Bible for three reasons. Number one, because it confronts us with ourselves. Every time God's Word confronts a man, that man is brought up short before God in his need. And so God, way back in the Garden of Eden, confronted man with a question that stripped him of all of his pretenses. Adam, where are you? For every time God speaks, man's brought up short. We stand before the law and we realize that we've sinned. We stand before Jesus Christ and we recognize and experience the mercy of God, but in the white light of His eternal goodness, we fall, we realize that we have fallen far short because the Bible confronts us with ourselves. Now the words of the text that Lee read are not pretty words. They are not written to build up your ego, to inflate it. They are not written to compliment you, but they are realistic words. I want you to read them again because you're going to see yourself there. Dead in trespasses and sin. Dead before God, inactive before God, decaying in character, living according to the course of the world, under the domination of the prince of the world. Just like the others, children of disobedience under the wrath of God. That's what we are. 
We've not outgrown the Bible because the Bible, when it finds us, shows us what we are like. When I was in the sixth grade, my sister, who is two years older than I, had a boyfriend named Wenzel Narville. Now don't let the name fool you. He was the coolest guy in school. He was the star quarterback. He was the most handsome, and he, he liked my sister. And he gave her a diary, and she started writing those little secrets about her and Wenzel in that diary. And one day he, he called me off to the side, and he said, Gerald, I want you to get your sister's diary. I want to read it. Now I wanted to be in with the with the with the guys. I wanted to be I wanted to be important to them, and I knew that if I got that treasure, I would arrive. Now where can you hide a diary in your in your bedroom? Just a little frame farmhouse, no locks on the door. That's going to be a piece of cake. I searched forever for that diary. Finally found it. It was a little book about half the size of my Bible. When I found it, I just knew I had arrived, but it was locked. And the key was missing, and I had to find it. Now, the key's going to be a little harder to find than the diary. You can hide that in a lot of places. So I started my search for the key. About every two or three days at school, Winslow would want to report, How are you doing? You found, I found the diary, but I can't get it open. Hunt the key, man, hunt the key. And for a while there, that book, that diary, was the most important book in the whole world to Winslow. Why? Because it had stuff in it about him. Stuff that was written by somebody for whom he had a great deal of love and respect. He wanted that so bad. I, I've often wondered, why did he just ask her? There was stuff in that book about him and he knew that it was written in the secrecy of her own privacy and he wanted to know what she thought about him. I want you to know this is the most important book in the world because there's stuff in here about us written by one for whom you and I have a great deal of love and respect and, and devotion and reverence and fear. There's stuff in here about us. Every time I read about Samson, I see myself in his passion and I find myself in the, in the arrogancy of Moses and in the leisurely license of David and in the emptiness of Nicodemus and in the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and in the loneliness of the prodigal who left his father for the far country. Have you ever outgrown your emptiness, your rebellion, your loneliness for God? If you haven't, you've not outgrown the Bible. And so a missionary passed by one day, saw a native reading the Bible on the side of the road, and the, and the missionary said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the native said, this, I'm not reading this book, sir. This book is reading me. We've not outgrown the Bible because it confronts us with ourselves. Secondly, we've not outgrown the Bible because it confronts us with God. Now, if you want me to get to know you, you've got to want me to get to know you. You are a human being, so you can tune me out. Some of you already have. Sleep on. But those of us who, who are still there, you can tune me out. 
And you'll not let me know you unless you talk to me. Now I can know a little bit about you by looking at you. I can take your hand and shake it, and if it's rough and calloused, I can pretty well imagine that either you're a gardener or you work out of doors in manual labor. I can listen to you talk, and if you have a brogue, a central Oklahoma brogue, I can spot that. Now, I don't have one. But I can tell it, um, I can tell some of you from the south, I got that right away. But I'll not get to know you unless you tell me about yourself, unless you tell me what's in your mind and what's in your heart, what are your dreams and what are your thoughts. In order for you to get to know me, for me to get to know you, you've got to talk to me. God wanted us to get to know Him. Not just His will or the, or the Ten Commandments would have been enough. Not just His power or creation would have been enough. Not just His love of beauty or that mockingbird singing over on Live Oak this, Live Oak this morning would have been enough. He wanted us to get to know Him, so He spoke a word. Now, He didn't speak audibly. I don't suppose... To most of us, we wouldn't have been able to understand him. Half the world would have not been able to understand him had he spoke audibly, and the other half would have been scared to death. Marshall Edwards was pastor a long time in the Columbus Avenue Baptist Church in Waco, and he had a little girl. And one day, this little girl, about four years old, her name was Cindy, and her mother came after Marshall. They wanted to go eat out at lunchtime. He didn't get, off, get home in, at noon often, and it was kind of a treat. And so they were going to let her go where she wanted to go to eat. And she said, I want to eat Mexican food. Oh, she loved Mexican food. And so they went down to, make, to the Mexican food place there in Waco, the best place you can buy it, and they ate a big Mexican plate, and they were headed home back to church. A little girl standing up in the back seat, Cindy, and she was talking to herself. She was just carrying on the best conversation. She said, God, I just love Mexican food. I'm so glad that I got to eat Mexican food today. I just love tacos. And I just feel so good. He said, God, I, I just want to thank you for letting Daddy take us down and eat Mexican food. Then she answered herself, You're welcome, Cindy. <laughs> now, I don't imagine any of us have ever heard that voice, You're welcome, Gerald. Welcome, Jerry. Maybe not audibly. God didn't speak that way, but He spoke a better way. He spoke in the language of His Son. And the Word in the beginning was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father hath declared Him. And so when he spoke, he spoke in the language of a baby crying in a manger. And he spoke in the language of a Savior's prayer. He spoke in flesh and blood. He spoke in his Son. And you know what he said? He said, I love you. For when Jesus came, it was love stooping. When Jesus died, it was love sacrificing. When Jesus rose again, it was love triumphant. He said, I love you. We'll never outgrow the Bible because where are you going to learn about God except through Jesus Christ? And where are you going to learn about Christ except the Bible? For in the Bible, man is confronted with God in Jesus. Martin Luther calls the Bible the manger in which God rested His Son. Listen to this magnificent statement. 
He said, just as the wise men and the shepherds through eyes of faith saw the incarnate Word of God lying in a manger of straw, so do we through the eyes of faith see the same incarnate Word in the manger of paper and print. I like that. And so a German resistance fighter was about to be put to death. The chaplain came to his cell to talk to him. He didn't want a chaplain who wants a preacher. I'll die with a snarl and a curse. The pastor came in, said, I just want to leave you this book. If tonight on your knees, in your fear, you'll seek God, he'll live in that book, out of that book in your life. The next morning, the chaplain saw him as he went and made his way to the guillotine. And as he passed the chaplain, he said, Last night I read your book. A man stepped out of the pages of that book into my life, and I'll meet you in heaven. That's why we've not outgrown the Bible. Finally, we've not outgrown the Bible because it calls us to decision. My friend in West Texas calls it decisions. He said, have you made your decision yet? Incision or decision? Have you made your decision? The Bible calls for decision. The amazing thing about this book is that you don't read it for entertainment. If you're going to read it for entertainment, you're wasting your time. The amazing thing about this book is that you can memorize pages of Scripture and it'll make no difference in your life because it wasn't written just to, for us to, intern, to take internally, to, 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 to read and to memorize. It was written to call men to decide. And so it talks about sexual, the sexual aspect of human life. And it says, now it's time to decide. Are you going to live a pure life? Or are you going to throw that away? And it talks about marriage. And it says, all right, are you ready to make an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person? If you're not, you're not ready to marry. Make your decision. It talks to us about parenting and it says, all right, now you have children. Train up a child in the way you should go. It's time to decide, are you going to do that while they're children? It talks to children. It says, obey your parents. If you want to live a full life, you must do that. Now decide if you're going to or not. It talks to us about neighbors and it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's time to do that. Do it. It talks to us about giving. Say it now, are you going to give what belongs to God or are you going to rob Him? It's time to decide. It talks to us about discipleship. It says, come and follow me. And it talks about commissioning and says, go into all the world. It's written for decision. Now you can sit in these pews and listen to preachers come and preachers go, and most of you have. But I want you to know that the Bible calls you to decide. Piddling around, I almost said another word there. Quit messing around with it. Get on with it. Get after God, follow God, commit yourself to God, all sell out to God or not. What are you going to decide to do? The Bible calls men to decision. Someone asked the little boy, what, 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 what's in the Bible? The little boy said, well, it starts out in Genesis. And it ends up in revolutions. Now he missed it. No, no, he didn't. He didn't. Or I tell you that what's in this book is revolutionary.
It will make a difference. You decide that you're going to encounter yourself and you're going to encounter God and you decide that you're going to follow Him and you're going to sell out to Him and I promise you a revolution will start and it will change your life, it'll change your home, it'll change the community, it'll change the church. It's revolutionary when Jesus begins to walk in a man's life. So we've not outgrown the Bible. We've not outgrown the Bible because you've not yet decided to decide to follow Christ. But it's time to do it. And today's the best day. Now some of you made change, made decision, made decisions at camp. Now the big question is, are you going to do that where it counts? Where everybody knows you? Some of you made decisions in Bible school or in junior camp. The decision you must make this morning is, are you willing to do it now where it counts, where everybody knows you? Some of you have been wrestling with some decisions in your own life. God says in His Word, come and follow me. It's time to do it. And so when we give our invitation, all over this front, I think, probably, there are going to be young people. There are going to be adults. I just have a feeling. I think this is the day. And there are going to be some of you who will come. And you'll say, I can identify with everything you said. Not that you said it, but I've been thinking about it all week. I want to get straightened out with God today. After we've had prayer, we'll ask you to come. Father, I thank you that there are people in this place this morning who are willing to say yes when you ask and willing to say no when it's time to say no. And I'm grateful, Father, that you've spoken to us today and that your word has penetrated to our heart. Now I'm afraid, Father, that Satan will come when the seed has been planted like birds to devour, to take them up, snatch them away. So in Jesus' name, I pray, God, that you'll bind Satan from this moment of decision. Cast him away from here until each one of us has had an opportunity to respond. And I pray for that life-changing decision to be made by our people this morning. And I ask for it in Jesus' name, for His sake. Now, in the spirit.